Welcome to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're happy to have you here. Today is this episode, I should say, is the last episode for our live album series that we've been doing for the last couple of months. Today we're discussing the last live album that we have in Rush's catalog, R40, the 40th anniversary. And it's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of, like, one of the most eccentric, or maybe not eccentric, but definitely one of the most unique um, pieces of material that we have from their catalog. It's going to be a lot of fun to discuss. Before we do that, let me mention that if you're in the New York City area, like I am, we're trying to have a Rushcast meetup with myself um, and uh, as many Rushcast listeners that we can get together. So uh, that'll be likely mid-December, maybe January. We haven't nailed down a date yet. Um, But once we do, I'll start tweeting about it and inviting people to send me emails and let me know that they'll be there. Uh, Right now we're looking at a nice, uh, like a decent amount of people who are going to be there to hang out and talk Rush. So uh, I would love to have you there. So if you're interested, please shoot me an email, rushcash2112 at gmail.com. Also, if you're not on our on our mailing list, please send me an email and let me know you'd like to be on the mailing list, then I will add you. For everybody that has done that already, I've sent out one email, but maybe if you were added late, you haven't gotten that email. If you've sent me an, an email about being on the mailing list, you're on the list. 99% <laughs> sure about that, unless somehow you slipped through the cracks, but I'll send out an email after this episode. Uh, be on the lookout for that. But yeah, we'd love to have you come grab a drink and talk uh, in person for once, you know? It'll be a lot of fun. Joining me today to talk about R40, returning to the show is Dylan Bano. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Do you remember you? when I used to say your last name wrong all the time? <laughs> yeah. I got it figured out now, man. I learned. That's uh, good. And also, is Brian, is it Eckberg? That's right. Brian Eckberg, first time calling the show. Where are you from, Brian? Where are you calling from? I'm uh, right outside of Seattle in a town called Redmond, Washington. And uh, I have to say I nailed Dylan's last name on the first try. <laughs> I, You know, when I, when I hear it now, I'm like, eh, I, was, uh, I was not a very smart – it wasn't a very smart guess on my part to think it was Bono. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not a very hard name to figure out. I was just kind of stupid. That's right. Uh, Dylan, remind everybody where you're calling from in case they forgot. I'm from a small town in Saskatchewan called Melville. Now it's about an hour and a half away from Regina and eight hours from Calgary, Alberta. Very cool. Uh, if you're a relatively new listener to Rushcast, you don't know this, but. Um, a couple days ago, I listened to an old Rushcast episode. I don't really ever do that. I don't listen to my old episodes. And I listened to the R40 episode we did, specifically the Setlist Challenge results episode. So we had a Setlist Challenge. Listeners sent me lists of songs that they thought. It was their prediction for the R40 setlist before we knew what it was. And Dylan won the entire freaking thing uh, in a landslide of sorts. Uh, he got a bunch of a bunch of those songs correct. Uh, I didn't do so great on that challenge. Quite a few I got challenge. very wrong too. What did you say? 
I said there was, uh, there was quite a few I got very wrong as well. Do you remember what one of them was? Uh, well, you persuaded me to put Prime Mover and Limbo on there. <laughs> That's right. I, I think I, I had told... the whole Fear series as well. Oh, the whole Fear series. That was very popular, though. Well, I didn't have that. I won't take the, the hit on that one, but um, I had been preaching prior to R40, uh, the first show in Tulsa. I had been preaching that there were two locks for this set list, that they were going to play Prime Mover and they were going to play Limbo, and I whiffed on both of those. I could not have been more wrong. My whole set list could not have been more wrong, uh, except the Garden which I talked about a lot in that old episode. Was how I was very happy that I was so right about them not playing the Garden. Uh, man, R40, there's a lot of things to take away from this one, aside from the nostalgia part. And um, I guess I'll ask, uh, Brian, why did you volunteer to come represent this live album on the podcast? Yeah, for me, it was just... Uh, it, it's hard to... Um, separate yourself from the possibility that this was the final, you know, the final thing from Rush. And so I, I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to be part of that. I, all of the live albums have, have their ups and downs, but um, for me, this was just such a, a, a landmark as a fan of, wow, this could be the last time we hear from these guys, at least in a live context. And, um, you know, Considering the staging of the show, considering the set list and how it covered their career, it felt like something that was, um, you know, a, ni a nice thing to be part of in, in terms of commenting on the things you loved about such a, a momentous show for all of us as fans. Was it um, in Seattle? Was your R forty show the nearest one for you? It was, yeah. Saw it in Seattle at the Key Arena, and uh, which is, you know, not not the best place to see a concert. Comple you know, if I'm completely honest, I had seen them a few years prior at the Gorge, which is a huge outdoor. Uh, uh, it was the last tour of Clock, the last show of Cl Clockwork Angels. They played at this place called the Gorge oh, in uh, outside of Seattle, and it's this huge canyon that it's like the miniature Grand Canyon that's outdoors. This amazingly gorgeous setting right in the middle of Central Washington. And um, they just the setting was spectacular. The weather was amazing, and they were. It, it was up there for me, top two or three shows I'd ever seen of them. I mean, Getty especially in that on that show was just absolutely on fire. So, um, going back to an indoor arena like Key Arena is, um, it was okay. I mean, I, I enjoyed more obviously the theatrical aspect of of the show more than the sound itself. But that's just kind of because Key Arena kind of stinks. You know, it's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I I would say very similar things about Madison Square Garden, so I don't think that sounded incredible. But right. maybe that's what we get with hockey arenas, you know? It's an arena. It's not made for music. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Dylan, I mean, same question to you, Dylan. What, why this tour? Um, well, I, I don't know. I figured I'd do the, uh, the episode where I kind of nailed the setless challenge. I don't know. <laughs> Not not like you're bragging or anything. I just felt it was appropriate. <laughs> it is appropriate. That's great. Um, so I've got a ton of notes here, man. A lot to say about this one. I I, I always try to do like my overall observations before I do the song by song, track by track thing. Um, first and foremost, 
in a kind of we'll start with the in a kind of negative light a missed opportunity to cover every album guys <laughs> you know let's let's go back 10 years to R30 we covered they covered every album not in any kind of order but they played at least one track from every album but Presto why 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 was that a thing you couldn't throw one Presto track in there to just say you got them all no other tour, unless we talk about the real old tours where they only had a couple albums, had they covered every album. And it was it, here's another chance to say you could you did it. And um, to be honest, I'd take two, one or two fewer Clockwork Angels songs if it means I get one Test for Echo song, one Hold Your Fires or uh, yes, Hold Your Fire, yes, Hold Your Fire song. Um, or any of the other two that weren't represented. Um, same with maybe like a moving pictures, but I understand the theme of this show was tricky. Uh, it was songs that were, you know, most important in their career is what I think Getty labeled it as. That's just a takeaway for me. Brian, do you get the same feeling or are you someone who goes, you know what? I don't need to hear anything from Tess for Echo. No, I would have loved to have heard something from Tess for Echo or for Presto, um, any of those albums, really. Um, I, I look at the set list um, just like what you said. They, I think they looked at it seriously as a, a as a retrospective. But I felt like this, um, I felt like this set list from a Rush perspective, and me sort of putting myself in their shoes, which is preposterous, but whatever. It's um, it's. I think this was kind of a self indulgent thing for them. They, you know even with a song like Tom Sawyer that is on there and it's been on live albums a million times, most, you know, Neil always says he loves playing that song because it's a constant challenge. Um, I, I think the songs that they had on here, they, they're they most proud of, of their most recent work. So you see a lot of Clockwork Angels things. Uh, and I think, you know, they, they just wanted to play the songs. They wanted to find that balance between songs that they enjoyed playing and songs that the fans expected on a quote-unquote final tour like this, while also throwing in some surprises. I think we'll probably talk about some of these uh, as we go through the set list. Um, but there was definitely some eye-openers for me. I, I, I don't know how you were, Dylan or Jay, but when I went into this show, I didn't want to know anything about the set list. So I wasn't listening to any podcast. I, I wanted to be completely surprised going into the show. And, you know, so while I wasn't surprised to hear so many Clockwork Angel songs, when How It Is popped up, I was like, wow, I, this is the last song I think that I would have guessed they would have chosen. Um, it just blew my mind. And, I, you know, not not necessarily positively or negatively, because I don't really have an opinion about that song, but um, it just surprised me that, wow, they're going to go into the vault and they're going to come out with How It Is. Uh, Dylan, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I think, you know, they, they probably poured over it for those months that they rehearse before a tour, and they probably really wanted to represent every album. But then, then you know, you hear them talk about when they first come up with this episode, this show is six hours long or something. And so maybe they, they practice all those songs, but then they cut them out because they love another one too much or they love playing another one too much. And you kind of, you, you saw that from uh, the time machine tour where they had uh, practiced Jacob's ladder, but then cut it out for the, uh, for the tour. Um, 
you know, who knows what they've practiced and didn't play. Maybe they've practiced the enemy within or prime mover, but decided that they like playing animate and roll the bones better. Yeah. Um, so I, like I can't really, sorry. Yeah. I, I just can't really fault them for that, but um, it does seem like a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think think that's an okay way to label it. It's a missed opportunity. and Not to say that they were wrong to leave them out. I I might argue they're wrong just because I'm an extremely selfish Rush fan. But, uh, (laughs) you know, it's not to say they're wrong, but it was just, well, the opportunity was there, you guys. You, You kind of... You similar to the Cleveland Indians blew it in extra innings in the in the in the in the game seven of the World Series there with R thirty. You were this close. You were ninety nine percent of the way there, and now and you missed it. So here we have another opportunity, and we missed it again by even a bigger margin. But that's cool. You know, I I still like R forty better than R thirty in almost every respect. So I'm not gonna whine about it too much. Uh, <laughs> speaking of whining. I think these are the maybe the only two negative comments, and we'll get them out of the way, that I have. Uh, what's up with the lighting? I think the lighting is awful on the DVD. The movie portion of R40. The guys are not lit well. It reminds me of, like, oh, uh, maybe, like, an exit stage left. Like, the stage is not... It's, it's as if the spotlights were non-existent. It's the... It's Getty and Alex specifically... Everything on stage is lit pretty well, but they themselves are not brightly lit, and that kind of irked me as I watched this again. Uh, had either of you noticed that, Dylan? I did notice that they were uh, the whole picture was like really blue. There was a lot of blue light. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of made um, seeing like exactly what kind of instrument they were playing uh, yeah. difficult. Because. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know if he was playing a red Rickenbacker or a blue one or that if it was, was black. I mean, I would, I would chalk that up to also that color was on that Rick because I think it is like a deep, dark burgundy. It's not quite black, but it was really hard to tell. Yeah. Brian, had you noticed? Um, to be honest, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. Um... I didn't notice that, but uh, looking back on it, I, I think you're probably right. I think that was probably a difficult show um, from a production standpoint in a lot of different in a lot of different ways. You know, both from uh, sonically because Getty especially is using a lot of different bases to uh, staging it itself. The ca- the stage keeps shrinking and shrinking. You have to work through the logistics of the guys coming on stage and pulling it apart. Um, and y- you know, I. I I, I, it just feels like something that's really difficult to pull off well. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, I, I do agree that it, even on the back cover, uh, Dylan mentioned the blue lighting. Even on the back cover of the R40 DVD, it's nothing but like blue light shining down on the guys. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> now I'll say something positive for once. This, you know, I, I always kind of thought in my head. I had my mind made up on Alex's guitar tone. I loved it during Snakes. I thought that was kind of his peak with the Hughes and Kettner uh, amps and his his Les Pauls that he had highly customized. Um, however, I listened to R40 again, and this is a, an album I think I've only probably seen three times total now. Like, I just haven't... The others I've absorbed a million times, but this one, like, something was different 
watching this one because it was still kind of new to me and I hadn't seen it in a while. And I'm like, you know, the guitar sound might be my favorite. The guitar tone is incredible on R40. And now he's going directly through the board. He's not using amps anymore, similar to Clockwork Angels, but something, and I bet a lot of this is credited towards the mixing because I don't think much changed from Clockwork into R40. So I think we're, what I'm really talking about is the how great it's mixed. Uh, were there anything, were there any high points in terms of the mixing for you, Brian? Well, I think, um, I thought Getty's bass sounded amazing on this album in a lot of places. And I think part of that, for me at least, was the fact that he was using so many different types of instruments. Mm-hmm. And you could actually hear that, you know, you're, you're used to that j- jazz tone for Getty and it's, it's a tone, you know, say what you will, it's Getty Lee's tone. But then when he'd pull out the Thunderbird or whatever, and you're hearing something that maybe you have never heard on a rush song before a real incredible, just ridiculous bottom end that really isn't present on uh, so many albums uh, in terms of like a round bottom end that sounds amazing. I agree. Alex sounds fantastic. His, his guitar sounds amazing, but um, specifically, I I think, especially his, like you're saying the, uh, the Thunderbird on animate was ex- yes. you nailed it. Like it was just a different flavor and it was a rounder, fatter bottom end on that track. I think I thought that was yeah, a good and example. It's, it's, re- it's really interesting when you hear, um, it's almost like someone else is playing a perfect Getty Lee comp, right? Because it's someone playing perfectly his style, but it's coming from a, it's, it's a bass tone that you may not recognize if you're a, if you're an avid listener, you know, that, well, that sounds like Getty, but on the other hand, it doesn't sound like Getty. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that really, from the way I listen to these songs, when I would hear that, it really refreshed things for me and, and took me back to, especially seeing it live and watching him pull out all those amazing instruments and really enjoying that. So I thought that was really refreshing for, for the, for the, for the entirety of the performance. Dylan, did you like the mix? The mix is kind of hit and miss for me. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of good things about the mix, um, but then I hear a few different things, and I don't like them as much. Uh, I will agree with Alex's tone sounds phenomenal, pretty much well through the whole thing. Um, there there are a few uh, bass. Uh, well, maybe maybe they're not bass tones, but like things that Betty's chose to do with different basses, um, kind of I don't know didn't didn't like them as much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a bass player myself and someone who obsesses over his main his number one's tone, um, I wasn't happy to see anything. I, I was I was in love with every jazz bass he pulled out. Because I'm a jazz bass freak. I love jazz basses. So to see him pull out all those vintage J basses was fun. And his tone does not differ that much from jazz bass to jazz bass. But anything but jazz bass to me, it was a little bit of a shot to the heart for me. Not to say, like I mentioned to Brian, it kind of made animate a bit. It kind of refreshed a lot of those songs. But I don't like it as much as his number one. And also, you guys may have noticed... When he goes back to his number one, you hear it. It's not just that you see he's got his main bass mm. back, but you go, "Wow, he's right. That thing does sound different." We've heard about, we've heard him talk about 
oh, this bass, just something about it just sounds different. And I never really believed him. I'm like, no, your other jazz, your other Getty Lee jazz basses sound just the same. But on this one, you're like, oh, man, he's not kidding. That thing sounds different. <laughs> yeah, it's one of a yeah. kind. <laughs> uh, it was also cool. I actually kept a tally when I was watching um, of all the songs. So he played the uh, he played a jazz bass on 13 different songs. Um, he had that old Thunderbird, the newer Thunderbird. Each had one. Um, a P bass appeared on four different tracks. He had that metallic-looking bass, like the Les Paul shape. I'm not exactly sure what that one is called on one and then a Rickenbacker for three. And then there's the red bass at the end, which I, I don't know how to identify either during uh, what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. But uh, really interesting to see him playing other stuff. So let's get into the tracks here. Um, I'd, we're talking about the Setlist Challenge, Dylan, and I, I mentioned on that episode, uh, you, got an extra, you got a bonus point if you correctly predicted the first song of the night and the last song of the night. A few people got the last song, Working Man. Not too hard to predict. Nobody predicted The Anarchist. And I, I'll never forget the surprise I had in like how incredibly shocked I was that they opened with The Anarchist. And at this point, I hadn't realized, because I went in blind like Brian did, I didn't know they were going to be going reverse chronological like this um i didn't know until about three tracks in or so so um the only thing i have to say about the anarchist i think the very few first measures work as an opening song like yeah you can open a concert with that however it's long it's a long track and i thought is this too long for an opener um brian what did you think of the anarchist as number one i absolutely loved it i mean it it helps for me that i that's one of you know top three songs on that album for me Mm -hmm. um i love that song to me that was in clockwork clockwork angels the first time i listened to it the studio album that was the moment where i said okay this is a rush song you know the songs that came before it i enjoyed but you know the anarchist the the chorus of the anarchist i was like this is what rush is to me this sounds like an actual this is what i this is what i've been waiting for for this album mm-hmm. so when when you know the drums start and it just sounds amazing i was i was really happy in fact i would argue that the the first three songs on this on this live performance are just uh, it's just three bangers right out the gate and I, I i love the way this this whole performance starts i thought it was fantastic it, I, I will agree it was a surprise i didn't expect it i was expecting tom sawyer or i was expecting something out of the blue you know some some big different thing um I had no idea what to expect, but um, once I recognized what it was, I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to be fun. Dylan, did you like it as an opener? I think it works well musically, uh, but I can see, and I mean, uh, from my from two shows that I saw, um, getting, I mean, being around a live show, you, know, you kind of get to know, like, First couple songs, the, uh, the engineers are trying to fine tune the mix, and they're also trying to fine tune the monitors. And the anarchist is not an easy song to sing, especially being the first one of the night. So there, there could be a little bit, you know, a couple of hiccups here and there, but musically and instrumentally, it comes out of the hard and fast and you're it's running and then you're 
it, it gets everybody who are kind of still in the concourse, maybe waiting in line for a beer, to be like, oh, the show's starting. I got to go. I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, if now that we we can look back at it and go, well, they were going to go in order, so they had to pick something from Clockwork. I don't think there might not be another this might have been the only right answer on Clockwork Angels to open with. Like, I don't know if opening with Caravan would have really worked, you know. It would have worked, but it's not quite, it's a little bit too um, indulgent, I think, for a, not indulgent, it's just a little too involved. Anarchist is a little bit more of a story. It's a little bit more straightforward in the sense that, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus kind of thing. Um Plus, it introduces the instruments one at a time. The intro does, right? You start with the drums, then oh, Alex yeah. has his part, and then Getty comes in. So it's a nice, you know, ramping up musically of like, okay, we're back. Let's go, guys. Yeah, great point. Good point. Um, so we ended up getting, depending on what show you had, uh, Clockwork Angels next, or The Wreckers, uh, Headlong Flight. And I think the Headlong, the, uh, headlong Flight was kind of easy to predict, like... I'm not surprised they pulled that one back out because it just rocks so hard. Uh, the records, however, I was surprised at. I was kind of shocked that I didn't end up hearing the records, but when Chad turned to me and told me, hey, at my show uh, in Boston a couple days ago, we heard the records. I'm like, really? The second song out of the gate, we're hearing the records? That that feels weird. Um, but I think both those tracks work. Both those tracks are good tracks. Um just a lot of Clockwork Angels right out of the gate. Maybe it kind of fits the theme of the stage anyway. You know what I mean, Dylan? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, going from the Anarchist to Clockwork Angels, though, does that seem kind of like the Anarchist ends on a high note and then you kind of got to wait about half a minute or a whole minute until the Clockwork Angels kind of ramps up, whereas the record also starts right away? That's a good point. I mean, it keeps the anxiety in the air, you know. Like we, we, all that anxiety building up to the first song, and then you get the first song, and now we're gonna. They kind of boost that anxiety a little bit more. They don't quite let it die yet. Right. What about you, Brian? Uh, you know, I'm probably uh, the, you know, in terms of the records, that's not my favorite song, to be honest. So I was kind of, uh, you know, that 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 song is one of the weaker ones on clockwork for me. So I was, I was kind of ready for, for things to move on. Now, big moment here as we get a song that has, that just will not die in far cry (laughs) for the first time ever. We get it in the middle of a set. And, And by the way, I'm glad it hasn't died, especially since it's finally performed correctly. Somehow something changed. We've talked about it the last couple of weeks, how Far Cry does not live up to the sound it has on Snakes and Arrows, on the, on the studio album. It does on this version, on this recording. The intro is done correctly, finally. We have the correct, um, the correct balance of acoustic guitar sound and electric guitar sound in that intro. Uh, it feels tighter. It feels more... It feels easier for them somehow. Um, I think overall with every, uh, and we're going to talk about this in a second with May Monkey Business, every song on Snakes and Arrows on this tour 
featured less emphasis on the acoustic guitar because everything on Snakes had so much acoustic layering through it, and that helps to the live sound a lot. You know, does that make sense, Dylan? Yeah, yeah. Um, just staying with Far Cry, not only is the acoustic sound in the mix, they also play the original rhythm of the, like the E notes at the beginning. The original they, rhythm? Yeah, the, like the da-na-na part. Oh, because originally, yeah, originally Alex had his acoustic part and he was just strumming like constant eighth notes. Yeah, yeah, but not even that. Like the uh, like the shots of the bass and the drums are are uh, what it is on the record. You'll, if you kind of compare it and the other live versions from Time Machine and Clockwork or uh, Snakes and Arrows Live, they kind of cheat and they don't add in. Like there's this one note, and I thought for sure you'd be all over this. There's this one note that they play differently. <laughs> Oh, I, I hadn't noticed, and I'll, I'll try to do like a side-by-side comparison later on. Because because when I was at my show, I was, you know, headbanging or fist pumping. I can't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was doing it to the original rhythm, and then they played the wrong rhythm, and I looked like an idiot. <laughs> That's They were there to embarrass you, dude. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brian, how do you feel about Far Cry? I love that song. I, I that um, the thing. I don't know. This is just a detail that that sort of bugged me when they when they have the uh, the very beginning with the, the the rhythmic intro that you guys were mentioning, and then they end on a, that F sharp chord that is a, an allusion to hemispheres. On album, that thing sounds so huge and it's so evocative. And to me, it it felt kind of. I don't know what the word is, but tinny or a little bit underwhelming on the live album. Exactly. And it's like, that's your moment, Far Cry. That's the moment where Far Cry really becomes something, um, a really cool moment. And, you know, the rest of the song is fantastic, but I felt like, man, if there's ever a moment where you're really going to nail that thing, I don't, I don't know if it's Alex's guitar or what, but it, it just, it's not, it's not the same. It doesn't evoke the same feelings for me as it as it did on album, and I was like, man, I really wanted that that chord to 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 be huge sounding, and it, and it kind of wasn't for me. Um, but whatever, it's still a great song. Now on Monkey Business, he doesn't even touch the acoustic. On Snakes Live, we see him um, during I don't know, it's an instrumental. What are we gonna call it? The verse, the chorus, maybe the, the chorus, I guess. Um, and he's just strumming that acoustic guitar while the synth is doing most of the melody work. And here he doesn't even touch it. He stays on his electric. Um, I don't know if he's emulating an acoustic with his electric guitar or what. But the point is it sounds better. It sounds fuller. Um, and also I noted that Getty's, Getty has this like peer off into the audience uh, at the after the last note of this track. Do you guys notice where he like leans on one foot and he like shields his eyes from the sun? I just thought it was like a cool moment. Yeah, Getty's like more and more doing these like weird things with his hands are making faces at the ends of songs, and I like it. Um, but I think yeah. Monkey Business in general is a much better sounding uh, song. You know, Brian, what do you think of this uh, rendition of Monkey Business? You know, it's it's fine. I it, I think you need that that sort of change of pace um, at this point in the set list, right? You've had some high energy songs to start it off with. You got to slow the tempo down and get people into the groove of things and that song is um 
No, it's fine. I, it, it probably isn't the, the the instrumental I wanted to hear there, but um, what is the instrumental does, you wanted to hear there? Leave, you know, leave. Um, where's my thing? I would have liked to hear there. Um, that is right up there with you know YYZ for me. So mm-hmm. um, I, it's just got such a groove to it that it's uh, amazing. I love that song, um, and I and I felt. You know, not with, without picking apart the set list too much. That's one of those songs that still, for me, would have brought the temperature of the room down a little bit after Far Cry and Headlong Flight, but uh, still kept things moving in a nice way. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, Main Monkey Business is a, is a good song, too, as well. How about you, Dylan? I, I love Main Monkey Business. Um, I missed my opportunity to uh, see him in, uh, on the Snakes tour. Because uh, I hadn't really discovered them yet, so when I found out they were playing Monkey Business. I was pretty pumped. Um, this recording of it is much different than the one thing because of no acoustic guitar. Mm. It sounds it sounds more industrial almost, especially in those first couple parts. And then when it's the original electric guitar parts and the guitar solo and you know, the bridges. It, uh, it it pumps me up. Maybe I'm, you know, I know I'm not alone in loving my business. Um, I know I didn't cool down when it was in the set. <laughs> Brian nailed it when he said how it is was a surprise. It was a shock. And you said it would probably be the last song you ever thought they'd bring out. Um, <laughs> man, if you told me we were going to get to hear a Vapor Trails song, it would have been, I think, next to Sweet Miracle the last song I thought they'd play. And um, I was very, I only recently fell in love with that track. I always thought it was just a throwaway tune, but uh, um, maybe in the last couple of years, I've been like, no, that track is actually fantastic. And and Alex comes out and surprises us all again with a beautiful blue Paul Reed Smith 12-string electric, which I've never seen. Yeah. I've never seen a PRS in a 12-string. Um a re- truly beautiful instrument sounded gorgeous um getty has this like extended bass solo no it's not extended it's just um excessively improvisatory right he just kind of goes bonkers and uh, right before the bridge uh, which is refreshing and also a cool place to do that uh, here we see getty on that old thunderbird which is uh, he's starting to change up his bases already alex singing the haze and like this is vapor trail, so there's all these like vocal layers going on in the background, taking the place of what a synth would normally do. And, and Alex is singing those. That's incredible. <laughs> it's an insane amount of singing to be doing on a song like this. And I thought for sure they'd just track them. They would just sample them. Now some were sampled, but you could tell Alex was doing his fair share of work as well. Um, so I know, I know Brian, you said you were. You were you were surprised, but were you happy to hear this one? Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of those moments where I was like, well, I think it helps at least on the the live version here, the the record that Getty has a moment to talk about this song and sort of set you up for it. Said, hey, this is a song, something along the lines of this is a song that sort of fell off the off the radar for us, and it's almost like they rediscovered it, and it feels it felt to me like they rediscovered it and they they fell in love with it again. And it's just one of those songs that 
I'm with you, Jay. It's like this is not. I would. I would have expected Earthshine. I would have expected mm-hmm. one little victory or something like that. Um, and keep in mind, but, Brian, we had pre heard very, very soon. Or what am I trying to say? Like, um, it was not long ago before the beginning of this tour when Getty came out and said we will not be playing anything for Vapor Trails again. Neil just can't mm. do it. Neil can't handle hearing. He doesn't listen to that record. He hasn't listened to that record in forever, and we will not be playing anything for Vapor Trails anymore. And I called their bluff, man. Yeah. I came on my show and said that is not true. That's not going to happen. Now I didn't. I'm not going to take the credit for how it is. I thought maybe we'd hear Secret Touch or One Little Victory one more time. Um, but it was a nice treat, don't you think, Dylan? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's such a layered song and to come after Main Monkey Business which is also such a layered song is I mean it's probably part of the course for the era which we recorded in it um, it doesn't feel the same as, as the album version of it but it's still fantastic Oh yeah, and it's it's kind of such a different vibe. Like I don't think Secret Touch sounds incredibly different live versus on the studio, but this one definitely does. Um, and I don't think it's in a bad way. I think it it might be an upgrade somehow. Not to not to yeah. diminish anything from the studio cut, but they're both great. I agree. I think it's one of those songs where you were talking about it earlier, Jay. It seems like they're exploring within this song. They're having fun with this song. Getty's doing his thing on bass. And, um, you know, your point about Neil not wanting to play um, Vapor Trail songs are, uh, I think that's well taken. And there's songs on here on Vapor Trails that are heavier than others, right? You know, a, a song like Earthshine, um, Ghost Rider, One Little Victor. I can understand why you wouldn't want to play those songs again. They're closely tied to the theme. Yeah. How it is, it, it feels a little bit separate to me, um, it, I don't know. It's not as dark. It's just kind of jaunty is the is the wrong word, but it just feels fun. And and you know they brought out the fun in that song. What's funny, Brian? I'm glad you brought that up because and I could I could twist this into a Vapor Trails episode in a second. So please do not. <laughs> you two need to not let me derail. But um, I uh, I've always thought it was weird and, and kind of contrasting how the lyrics are actually kind of down. Like, the lyrics are kind of depressing in how it is. I th- At first glance, like, I'm sure if you analyze them further, I, maybe I'm missing something. Um, yeah. But just if you take them as they are, they are kind of depressing. However, the music, like you're saying, it's uplifting. It's, a, it's an incredibly um, uh, optimistic kind of sound. Which always felt weird. He's saying, he's saying uh, it's such a cloudy day. Seems we'll never see the sun. You know, uh, it's how it is and how it ought to be. Like it's just, it's he's kind of like shrugging and saying whatever in my eyes. So, so yeah, it's exactly. funny you say that because it, is it what sounds it is. optimistic, but the words really aren't. Yeah, it's funny. It's a, it's that juxtaposition of you know, it is what it, it, this is how it is, but whatever, we're still gonna have fun with it. You know, right. it's. It's a nice, it's a nice uh, juxtaposition there. Now, Ch- I remember Chad and I were not uh, disappointed in any way to hear Animate. Um, there's a lot of tracks oh, on Counterparts God. I would have loved to hear. I was just happy Counterparts was represented. And um, 
Man, uh, at first I was like, well, I heard this on our 30. I don't know. Like, but man, they killed it. They, they just played it better. Somebody tweeted me and said, um, during the R30 episode, you didn't mention how incredibly slow Animate was on R30. Like, it was just way too slow. Yes. And here yes, it's, it's not. dragging. It's almost the perfect tempo. If not the perfect tempo, it's at least faster uh, than R30. Uh, the guitar sound, it, like we were saying earlier, just completely... He completely nails this modern sound that he has, but also during the the bridge brings back al- almost perfectly the counterparts that '90s PRS sound, which was kind of nostalgic for me. Um, the second verse comes way way down. Even the drums, all three of the guys, which was different than the R30 version, um, bring that verse so so down quiet that uh, it was a nice contrast between the rip-roaring parts and that that quiet verse. Um, I'm going to assume for both you, Brian, and Dylan, I'll go to Dylan first, that this was a great recording for you. I do like it, yes, Um, for a couple reasons. The tempo is much better than the R30 version. Um, The... um, um, they're both playing Gibsons, which oh, interesting! Is, I don't think we've ever cool. seen yeah. that. That's a good point. Yeah. We've, that's probably something that's never. We know Getty's never played one. Yeah, up until this tour, he hasn't played a Gibson, and this is the first time they're both playing Gibsons. Um, I animate as a song. I love the bass part. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite bass parts to play as a bassist. Mm-hmm. The chord progression just sounds so satisfying. And the way he uh, plays it with his little flamenco technique that he invented fits the song perfectly. And isn't it cool uh, that the, sec- also, the second chorus, he changes it too. He plays like these um, yeah. these perfect fifths chords. instead of just the root note, which is just the perfect little um, addition to add a little bit more part. spice to the mix. <laughs> yeah. And um, they're actually played the whole song as opposed to on R30. They kind of shortened the choruses in half Are you for some sure reason. about that? Because I thought they did the same arrangement. I thought the, the first chorus when we first get to it is half as long. I thought it was the same way, but I'm not positive about that. I'm pretty sure it's the same. Interesting. It just, okay. it just feels perfect. I don't know. Um, and that's that. The second verse, as you mentioned, where they go kind of like really low. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of that personally. It sounds like, it sounds like something uh, went wrong. Like <laughs> Neil dropped both his sticks, or <laughs> someone's amp came unplugged. Um, they they kind of do that at the end of the Red Barchetta solo. Or at least they have been doing that recently. Right. And I I hate that too. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> it just the the guitar solo just climaxes right at the end, and then on the recorded version and how it's supposed to be, like this is for Red Barchetta. It just kind of like keeps driving, but then they they go quiet and they're like kind of sneaky about it mm-hmm. and. You know, they're, they're, they're playing with us. It's, I mean, it's their song. They could do whatever they want. Right. I mean, it's a but, great thing um, to have to complain about. Like, we're not we're not complaining yeah. that they're replacing a member or, or 
you know, denouncing a whole decade worth of music. It's like, well, this is a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, I hate I hate this one time they played this song. Like the other twenty nine times, it's fine, but I hate, <laughs> right. I hate this one. Um, how do you feel about yeah, anime, it's Brian? One of, it's one of those songs that. Um, Tempo means everything, and you're you're so right when you were saying about how it's it's been it's dragged in earlier performances, and man, I I I can't imagine this song at any other tempo. This song was built to be at this tempo, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, anything else it sounds like it's dragged through mud. Um, I for me, like this song really holds a special place in my heart, just in general, because of you guys were mentioning how uh, Getty uses that particular technique. I, you know, this was sort of the debut for that technique when he, when he, um, with, um, on record. I think this is maybe one of the first albums where he, uh, really, really took to that flamenco technique and, and, uh, showed it off. And I remember hearing it on the, on the studio album for the first time and not being able to understand what he was doing. Like my ears would not register what he was doing. It's like, is he playing with a pick? What the heck is he doing? And, um, and and you know so it's always had had a special place in my heart and yeah I think they they nailed it here. It's oh. a it's a, a highlight on this album for me for sure. Oh really? I, I mean I would. I, oh yeah. I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that. I think I, I would have killed to hear another counterparts tune, but you know mm. you can't always get what you want. Uh, That's right. Uh, listen, roll the bones is. Um, I was not happy to hear roll the bones initially. Because that's not my favorite Rush song. It's not. I, I don't. I don't think it's a great song, uh, at face value. However, they did enough things on this version to make it entertaining for me. And also, I'd heard it on Rio R30. Like I'm like, uh, and also uh, different stages. Like I, I was just kind of getting sick of hearing it live and eating up a, a such a valuable slot. Uh, however, there are two things in this one. Number one, the P bass that Getty used. I thought I'd never, ever see Getty play a P bass, and he did. And I, when he took it out, I thought I looked at Chad and I was like, I just shook my head. I'm like, no, it's not gonna sound any good. I think P basses sound like garbage in general, um, <laughs> at least in the setting, like a rush kind of setting. And I was shocked. I'm like, this that bass sounded the best. I, I, maybe like top three of the bases that he played, I thought that was in the top three, man. It it was, and it was so appropriate for that song, that '90s kind of sound, um, contract or like kind of adjacent to the synth bass part that happens during the rap. So like a plus for that that ba that precision bass, and shame on me for not giving it a chance. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> this rap section which was completely different with all these celebrities in the background. Um, can you imagine, had they, like, let's say they're going to play for another 20 years. Let's just pretend. Every time they play Roll the Bones, they have to top that. They have to do it again with more celebrities. Or the same celebrities with different a different video. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't do this celebrity video in 2002, and then the next time they play it on the next tour put the skeleton back up the the skull doing the rapping people would not be happy with that i i think you're right but if you look at the celebrity list there's definitely some a listers and some c listers on that list right i mean you've got paul rudd you've got uh you know dinklage from game of thrones and everything and then you've got 
Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach of the Texas Tech Red Raiders or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> what is he doing there, you know? I think Tom Morello appears for, like, one word or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you could just, like, sub in some B-roll for the – if they were to do it again in 10 years, just keep Dinklage, keep Rudd, sub out Cliff Kingsbury and put somebody else in in his spot. Right. Um, uh, Dylan, what do you got on this rap section? Oh, um, yeah, roll the bones. Yeah, exactly what you were saying about the P bass. Like, I, um, they released the video for this in lead up to the uh, release of the of the album, and then I, I mean, I knew when they played it. When I saw it, they had uh, the P bass and. You know, in a concert setting, it's kind of a difference. Like you can you can feel the bass more than you can really hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the recording, I remember listening to it. I'm just like, I mean, I've, I've and then I uh, or I I was hearing it and I was kind of like, wow, how did they make this P bass sound so good? I'm like, well, of course Giddy would make a P bass sound good. He's freaking Giddy, <laughs> like. Um, like you said, it was appropriate to bring that song out and or uh, that bass out for that song. Um, and uh, sometimes when I'm when I'm listening to the audio only version, I I get to the rap section and I forget about the video, and then I hear people cheering during the video, and I'm like, why are they cheering this stupid skeleton video? <laughs> then I, and then I remember it's oh yeah, Trailer Park Boys are there, so yeah, okay. <laughs> bubbles um i had a, a revelation here when i was watching re re-watching r40 this week i want to talk about losing it and i want to talk about jacob's ladder so there's that website the rush petition online right that we all sign before each tour and we we select the songs we most want to hear that haven't been played in forever um right the the top in the last ten years, I remember the top three were always Middletown Dreams, Losing It, and Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder was always at the top though by like a million votes, um, and I guess the Camera Eye was in there as well. So we got to hear the Camera Eye, we got to hear Middletown on Clockwork Angels. All that was left were these two incredibly, you know, Losing It especially. It's gonna be tough to get to hear Losing It. It was doubtful. Um, I was shocked at how well it worked live. Obviously, we knew the violinist was both either violinists of either of the violinists were going to do a great job. We know it's a great part. However, Getty playing the bass in the second verse added a whole different level to this um, this song. It pushed the song ahead. That's it, you know the studio recording is kind of missing that now. Getty goes to the bass way earlier. On this recording, at the end of the song, when we get this, bom, 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 right? You get the idea. You get the sense that, like, man, this song is heavy. This thing is. This thing is like, it's kind of metal in a way, and it builds up <laughs> to this end, which is so. It just roars. Uh, and that was something that hadn't occurred to me either before I heard it live. I'm like, you know, this song really is pretty heavy. It just starts real slow. It has it has to, it needs time to kind of build and get there. Um, this huge build is what makes my thought is what kind of helps my thoughts on Jacob's Ladder that we hear a few songs later. 
Um, it's different than losing it. While everyone wanted to hear it, something was kind of something kind of occurred to me, and that's that losing it starts at nothing, and builds just a little bit, and builds, and builds. Well, I had a little bass part here, and then that guy comes in, and then the the violin starts his solo nice and light, and it builds and builds and builds and builds, and we get this huge moment at the end, and it's beautiful like that. However, Jacob's Ladder starts out. Rocking pretty hard. Big heavy metal groove. Um, the momentum totally drops out of this thing. There's this big empty hole in the middle of this song. And it kind of kills the... It kind of killed the vibe. I'm not saying it's a bad song. I'm not saying that part of the song ruins the song. I'm just saying in a live setting, the energy is totally sucked out of the middle of this thing. And then, and then we get the end of the song where the energy comes back, and I'm like, eh, you kind of killed it. <laughs> I'm not as excited anymore. Now, visually, Jacob's Ladder was amazing on this tour. We're going to talk about Jacob's Ladder individually, and I want to ask what you two have to say about it. And, I'm, and I'll, I have a lot of great things to say about it as well. However, it was very clear to me, since they were so close together, man, losing it does a better job live, and it's kind of evident, hey, maybe this isn't why they... Maybe this is why they didn't play Jacob's Ladder for so long. Maybe this is something they realized. They would play it in rehearsal and go, you know what? The, the song just stops in the middle. Mm. Am I, I, I'm sure one of you thinks I'm insane. Which is it? <laughs> I think you're insane, but for a completely different reason. <laughs> um, and, and, and mine is purely personal. Um, I was overjoyed, to, and I, I'm going to take it back to losing it momentarily. I was really happy to hear losing it, especially with the guest uh, violinist. That was fantastic. However, the very part that you say uh, made that song come together with Getty playing that figure um, absolutely almost ruins the song for me. Because and I it's it's an absolutely personal thing for me, but I used to, you know, long ago when I would be, take Rush to a friend and I would say, "Here's why Alex Lifeson is my favorite guitarist." I would actually play that figure from losing it to them. It's not impressive. It's not a technically difficult thing to say uh, to play, but it is a perfect phrase. It is the perfect moment in that song. And to me, it felt like it was completely an Alex thing. Like this, to me, it was like, this is why Alex is one of my favorite guitarists, because he he's able to play these incredibly sensitive parts that just fit the, the, the song perfectly. So to me, when I heard Getty playing that along with him, it felt like Getty was stepping on Alex's territory. And it was like, you know, I, I get your point, Jay, about it. It sort of gives some propulsion to that section of the song. But to me, it was like, this is sacred ground and let Alex have it. Okay. Um, um, my girlfriend walked by at the exact moment when you said, I think you're crazy, but for a completely different reason. And she stopped and <laughs> poked her head back into the room and gave a big thumbs up. <laughs> nice. See, two, two to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, I definitely, and you know, that reminds me of how I always commend Alex for going, or I say, you know, Alex is great because sometimes he goes, no, we don't need a guitar part here, like a motion detector. He'll go, nope, I don't need to play anything for a very long chunk of time, so maybe in this case it's, hey, Getty, you don't really need to play something there. Um, that could, this could be the bass guitarist in me who's just like, ah, yes, play that thing more. (laughs) Uh, I think Dylan's a bassist, so let's ask him what he thinks. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. No, the this this being the first performance of losing it on the DVD, like you'd think they've played this song for three tours already. Yeah, yeah, it's good call. Amazing. And and also a good point. Have like, we ever heard on a live album, is there ever on every live album, is there one track where that was the first time it had ever been played? I don't think so. No, because none of the live albums happen on the first date of the tour. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was, it was quite incredible. Um, I never, I didn't think they were going to play losing it. I I just thought they would just kind of like ignore everybody. Oh yeah. I I laughed at people. I'm like, you guys are cra- You're wasting your vote. <laughs> They're not going to play losing it. That's that's one of the top three songs that is just not built for the live setting. And God, I was wrong. <laughs> I was so yeah. wrong. Like they're not going to carry Ben Mink around for exactly. two months. <laughs> I, I wish they would have give, given Ben twice the length of the solo, right? I, I, I wanted to see more from him, even though what he played is fantastic. I just wanted him more of that because it sounds so amazing. Similar so to well. you guys have heard me rant about the Dreamline solo. I would, Brian, that's a great idea. I would love it if they said, hey, why don't you improvise for, let's say the solo is 32 bars. Why don't you improvise for 32 bars? Then you play the exact 32 bars you played on the record, just like Dreamline. Mm-hmm. That would have been really cool. Yep. Or um, some back and forth between Alex and Ben. You know, that could have been fun, too. Yeah, they could have taken yeah, exactly. that in some fun directions. It's, it's funny you say that because watching this, I felt that Alex and Ben, they do very, very well to work with each other during the song. Like, they're they're interacting and they kind of, they're like, you know, we, we know that Getty and Ben are good friends, but we don't really know much about Alex and Ben. And it seems Alex was actually pretty happy to play along kind of oh yeah you know, they, you know no they kind were of tended second other, fiddle definitely. to ben it was fun to watch their yeah. interaction um i want to get your your takes on jacob's ladder and my comments on jacob's ladder as well uh let's we'll start with brian um jacob's ladder to me um has always felt uh like a story right it's a narrative so you have uh the the song actually doesn't start that um that heavy to me it starts pretty light you know especially on exit stage left when you have getty just playing the the simple uh rhythmic bass figure underneath um alex's arpeggios and then it slowly builds into intensity to this super heavy thing right this incredibly heavy um song um and then to me it's always felt like that moment when uh you know when when the song breaks down and you have the keyboards and the the sort of spacey uh, synthesizer uh, melody there, that is to me narrative wise that is the moment that the clouds open up and Jacob's ladder the light is coming down from the clouds right everything preceding that was the thunder clouds right so you it's essential to the song I totally get what. You're, what you were saying about, hey, it, it sort of loses its momentum, but that song has to lose, lose momentum there because that's the point of the song. So I was really happy to hear it here on um, here on R40, um, and it, you know, it's it's just it's a it's a f- fantastic song because it's mostly musical and it really clearly tells that story to me. You're up, Dylan. And he's playing a P bass again on Jacob's. He's lap? playing a another yeah 
did you like the way it sounded? I mean, I just thought roll, it fit Roll the Bones really well. Um, how did you like it here? Yeah. You know, I I listened to this, uh, just the audio version, kind of like on my on my playlist, and I totally forgot it was the P-Base mm-hmm. until I rewatched the video this week, and I'm like, well, you know, son of a gun, Getty does it again. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you um, wonder how, how much time he spent choosing the bass per for each song, you know. You know, I, I watched. Wonder, a... I wonder what that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, I wonder what that process was like for him. Right. Um. Let's uh. Let's move on here because we got a. We're on par, on pace here for a three-hour episode, <laughs> which cannot happen. <laughs> um. I want to say one thing about subdivisions. One of the greatest moments in Rush DVD history or Rush live album history, is at one hour, three minutes, and 43 seconds. That's one hour, three minutes, and 43 seconds on on R40, the Blu-ray. It's an Easter egg. I'm not telling you what it is. If you want to go look, you can. One minute, three or one hour, three minutes, 43 seconds. Just pause right there and tell me what you see. And in a few days, I'll tweet it. If you want to know the answer without having to look it up, you got to have to follow me on Twitter. I'm not talking about it right now. All right? I'm writing that down right now. Write it down and go look. And tell me, if you guys are on Twitter, tweet it to me so I can retweet it. Um, Like, send me a picture or something. Uh, Or just let me know what it is. But you'll know it. If you pause right at that that moment, you will see the Easter egg. Did either of you catch it on when you were watching? I don't have anything written down. Good, good. I I was hoping that'd be the case. I want to see if you guys can catch it. I think you will. Um, The only thing I have to say about Hemispheres from this is that, and I know I'm skipping a bunch of tracks, uh, is that it's detuned. And... When mm. I heard it initially in Montreal, no, 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 in where did I see it? Madison Square Garden. I couldn't hear the song, a lot of the song. I knew what song it was. I knew what notes they were playing, but it was hard to hear because it was detuned and the room sucked. Um, that was one of the first things I was most anxious about on the DVD or the Blu-ray is I wanted to hear Hemispheres because I want to hear what they're playing. <laughs> it was hard to hear when I was actually there. Uh, but it's a it's a great recording, and how refreshing is it to hear Hemispheres and Cygnus Book One back to back like this in the same show? Yeah, and how how surprising to me was it to hear Getty actually sing Hemispheres? Oh, right, yeah. you 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 might expect that prelude, and then go into a shortened version of Cygnus X One. Um, it's uh, you know the voyage, but um, wow, to hear him sing that the, the opening bit of that was fantastic and, and it, you, of course you, you understand he's you got to detune that my god he was in his mid-20s when he sang that you know i mean i can't imagine he could pull off anything like that now can anybody yeah exactly <laughs> are those important songs uh, for you dylan oh uh oh yeah like hemispheres is so heavy when 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 i saw it live it was yeah, it was kind of like, I know this is supposed to be Hemispheres, but it just sounds so wrong, but so right. I don't know. The, the uh, And then with Cygnus, how they turned it into a two-part instrumental with a drum solo in the, in the middle. Yeah. I think, I think it works as an instrumental. Yep. It's, you know, I was kind of expecting him to sing a little bit, but 
He didn't do any singing in it. And they just went full bore, just, you know, just rocking that kind of like last chord in the, uh, in the, um, outro of, of Cygnus is like, I, I saw him on two shows back to back. I saw him in Calgary and I was blown away by this, by Cygnus. So when I went to see him in Vancouver, right after the drum solo and, uh, Alex was come up and he was alone on the stage and he was playing, I turned to the guy next to me and I said, careful. Cause they're about to go fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, and, that was the exact moment I was going to bring up was after the drum solo when Alex comes back out with those arpeggios and I'm like, Oh, they're not going to skip the coolest part. <laughs> this is great. And they hear like, both Getty and Neil at the same time. Is like one of the yeah. rawest sounds and one of also one of the clearest examples of his modern bass tone you'll ever get because it's not covered up by anything. It's so exposed in that moment. It's also the it's also like the uh, the most aggressive he'll ever play is like in that in that segment. Now, but uh, oh, yeah. before we recorded. Um, I mentioned how I didn't have anything to say about Tom Sawyer for as an example of a song where I didn't have any notes on it. And I think Dylan said he had several notes on this recording of Tom Sawyer. I want to hear what those are. Let's hear it. Uh, several. I have a couple. Um, I, you know, they've played Tom Sawyer every show since it's been released, or probably even before because they have like the pre-release version of it. So. I know I don't think it's their most played song, but just watch Getty when you like if you rewatch it, watch Getty at the chorus when he's playing the bass pedals. He's not looking at his feet. He knows exactly what mm. notes to hit. Just you know, of course he knows what notes to hit without looking at it with his feet. Like come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And then uh, Alex is always doing funny things with the camera. Right. The camera kind of gets in his face, and then he kind of like gets back in the camera's face. It's you know just those little little changes, you know, make the song worth watching because if you bought all their live albums as they've come out, you're kind of like, well, I, know, I know Tom Sawyer already. Skip, skip it. They give you reasons to watch it, in my opinion. They, they, they couldn't have done this album. They couldn't have done this album without Tom Sawyer. But what would have been? What would it have been like if they had done this album without Tom Sawyer? Chaos, right? It's it's weird to think. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm actually surprised that uh, that they did ca- that they used Camera Eye and they didn't play Limelight. Um, mm-hmm. I love the Camera for Eye for time reasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, set two here's a bunch of longer songs, so the camera eye sort of fits that theme. Um, but Limelight is arguably, you know, second or third place behind Tom Sawyer in terms of recognizable Rush songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now they haven't played it on two tours. They've played it a couple times on Clockwork, kind of in the middle of a set. But it's kind of been forgotten about. I thought for sure they'd play it on this tour, but no. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, this is one of my favorite recordings of Closer to the Heart. I've said it before. I don't like the jam in the middle. I like this song, short and sweet. 
not to say the jam like musically isn't working, which sometimes I've said it isn't, uh, but that's not my point. The point is, I think this song is is says its point best when it's short. I think it's 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 a short song. Leave mm. it short. Hey guys, every song you ever wrote was over five minutes long. You've got a couple <laughs> that aren't. Why don't we keep them that way? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I just think it's it's better. You get in, you get out with closer to the heart, and I think that's how it sounds best. Uh, there's also two points that are I think very unique about this performance. Getty plays his bass. He plays his bass guitar as the bass notes over the guitar intro, which I've never heard him do. I don't think. Mm. I've never heard him play the yeah, bass right. notes underneath the guitar intro. Um, also, uh, who is it? Alex is playing a 12-string acoustic and continues to play 12-string for much of the song. Um, and, of course, Neil's got actual chimes, or as a lot of you guys call them, tubular bells. Um Mm-hmm. And he and he, we get to hear the actual chimes being played uh, instead of the triggered version, mm-hmm. which is a nice change of pace. And of course, aesthetically, it's like very nostalgic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, close to the heart. Whenever I hear it live, it it brings me back to the first time I heard it on Exit Stage Left. And what's so striking about that song on that album is how loud the crowd is as they sing along with Getty, uh-huh. and. Um, on the original Exit Stage Left, and um, and I was actually, you know, when I first heard it, that when I saw that it was going to be on the packaging here, I was like, wow, are they going to? I wonder if they're going to do something strange here or something, and and let the crowd sing the entire song, or at least the intro, and Getty not sing or something like that, as a as sort of a uh, a callback to Exit Stage Left when the crowd is so prominent. Um, they didn't do that, obviously, but it. it to me, that's what made that performance on Exit Stage Left so special is because, wow, the crowd just almost overwhelms Getty in that moment, and it's not so much the case here with R40. I think this might be... This is very close to being my favorite version of Closer to the Heart. Um, I do like the different stages version with the jam at the end, but for different reasons, I love this one. Uh, the bass notes instead of the bass uh, pedals or keyboards or whatever at the beginning sound awesome, especially with the semi hollow body Rick that he's got. And the, um, um, yeah. And, and it's played straight through. There's no, it's not shortened. It's not lengthened. It's just the way it's supposed to be. The only, the only thing that I kind of like, I mean, it's a live song, so things are going to happen, but right after the guitar solo, and into the uh, into the final verse, Neil drops or breaks a stick or something, and he kind of uh, drops out a little bit. And then when it cuts to him doing a, a drum solo, you can see uh, his drum tech, uh, Lauren, grabbing the stick from underneath him. That's kind of a just a little funny thing to see. <laughs> Other guy's arm underneath Neil's kit. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny nice. how exposed he is in this show. Like he's he's. I remember at Madison Square Garden as well. I could see, as many of us could, um, we were so high up, um, behind the kit. And he just kind of sat in a chair, like right next to the drum kit to hand him mallets or whatever, which was a bit different than we were used to seeing. Um, All right, so let's talk about Xanadu. Uh, My big thing with Xanadu, aside from both double necks on stage at once and how rare this song has been played recently, uh, was how well the mood was set 
like we they brought all yeah. the lights down. We get these. All you hear is bass pedals and the chi- and the um. They're not chimes. What are they called? The wind chimes, right? You uh, you know what's coming. You can see Alex has his double neck, but then this like blue fog kind of rolls in around the stage. Like the mood was set so perfectly, perfectly for Xanadu, and I think that a a big part of its success. Not to say they could play it in daylight and people would still love it, but I think the reason it works so incredibly well is because they set the mood visually and uh, audibly. Does that make sense, Brian? Yeah, it's a beautifully staged song. It's it's another one of those songs uh, s- similar to Jacob's Ladder that builds a mood, and then all of a sudden, you know, when that first, you know, after Alex has done his little figure and the whole band just comes in with that big note, boy, it it just sounds insane. And yeah, they they did a great job. It, I, I remember on the tour uh, feeling when we got to this part of the show, I was like, you know, I I started feeling those emotions of, wow, this is taking me back to, you know, the earliest live album or the first live album I ever heard from of Rush, which for me was Exit Stage Left, and and th- and thinking back to Xanadu on that album and thinking that, wow, we're really coming to the end of the show. It's quite obvious that we're coming to the end of the show. There's not that many songs left after this. So I remember at the show feeling, you know, very... Um, starting to feel very emotional about, about everything. It's hard not to get, um, you know, caught up in that moment and thinking that, wow, this, this might be the, the last time I see these guys and, and whatever else, all those other thoughts that start coming into your head with such a, uh, an evocative and classic song. Right. Really cool that we get three songs from A Farewell to Kings. I'd never, if you told me there was a song at the, an older album that would get three songs represented, I don't know if I would have guessed Kings. Um, and I'm not complaining about it, but it's interesting. Uh, did you notice, Dylan, that there's a synthy part of Xanadu? I, I don't remember specifically which one, but it was early on, maybe like the first verse. Uh, and instead of like this, like w- that whiny, zany synth sound, it's like a string synth sound. Did you notice that? Uh, is it like that main part? Or is it before the? I don't know specifically, but I know when it comes in. back later, it's the correct synth sound. It seemed to be intentional, oh. but I, I just wanted to mention it in case someone's listening and thought the same thing. But uh, let, I mean, let me hear I'll your have, take on Xanadu. Listen to it again. Yeah, I the the double necks. I mean, that's classic. They played the full intro rather than on like R thirty. They shortened the intro and kind of shortened this whole song to under 10 minutes, which is seems like a crime. <laughs> um, and the way that they, the, the, the screens were set up to kind of pay tribute or, you know, because you're going back in time, it's got like the Massey Hall kind of theater backdrop yeah. behind you yeah, or behind them. Cool. And it's just the video, watching the video again, like I, I didn't take many notes because you, I just couldn't stop watching them. It's it's like watching masters at work, right? This performance is masterful, is all I can really say about it. Mm. Whereas, like, the Exit Stage Left version was, it was a new song then. It, yeah, it had an energy and a rawness. It had an energy and a rawness to it, but now 30 or 40 years later, they're playing it 
2015, they know the song in and out and they're playing it correctly. And it's just like they're, it's masterful. One yeah. of, now, Dylan, one of the parts I loved about 2112 and this performance of it, obviously the, uh, aside from the arrangement, which I think is perfection in terms of, of segueing in it, kind of getting through the entirety of the song without playing the entirety of the song and making it and keeping it under 20 minutes long, uh, getting all um, the gist of each part of the song in there. Uh, what I love is... Number one, the space backdrop that they have, like this like really cool galaxy image, and that's it up on the uh, the screen behind them. I thought that was a nice aesthetic. It wasn't too complicated. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't moving. It's just sci-fi. It just painted a sci-fi backdrop for us. Um, more importantly, what I noted was Alex's boost in energy and enthusiasm when we got to the rarer parts of the song the middle sections that aren't normally performed, yeah. Alex suddenly turned, he, he got so much more youthful. He just looked like a young rock star again. He seemed to really enjoy mm-hmm. those middle sections. And I wonder if he was the, 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 um, the, the guy with the, uh, the megaphone, so to speak, when they were rehearsing, who said, the, no, I want to play these middle The parts. sponsor for the song. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was thinking, he probably wanted to play the presentation section because that meant another guitar solo for him. <laughs> <laughs> so now he gets three guitar solos on twenty one twelve, and and he just kills all three of them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. I this is like isn't this like one of the longest guitar solos in uh, the grand finale section? I feel like he's playing way more, and he's just. He, it's an Alex moment. That could be true. Uh, I hadn't thought of it in terms of time, but I mean, it's definitely an iconic moment. I've talked about that before. The full version of 2112 is Alex Leibson, man. It's his, it's his show. Um, how did you feel about 2112, Brian? Yeah. I mean, we've all heard 2112 so many times, right? Through all, all these live albums, but this was one of those ones where you're right. Alex was seemed like he was alive. He seemed like he was having fun, happy to have the the spotlight on him, and just just blowing. Man, he sounded fantastic. Um, uh, man, this is so crazy. Like to come out, end the show on twenty one twelve, come back out and play Lakeside Park, a song that I always thought was flawed. <laughs> like I, I genuinely thought it was mm. a flawed song. I thought this was this isn't right. There's something about to be honest it was the bass part. I didn't think Getty's bass part was what the song needed. He totally changed my mind with this recording. And here's such an old song that hadn't been played in forever uh with their modern sound was so refreshing. It opened my eyes. I'm like this song really works. It works live, it works by itself, it works in the studio. Um I changed my mind about that bass part. I really liked the picture it paints. I, I like the picture it yeah. paints. Um, I like it at this part of the set. I like it to represent uh, its core, uh, its respective album. Uh, what did I write here? Oh, and of course the curtain backdrop, which was really cool. But this is one of the best surprise. I wrote best surprise for Lakeside Park, meaning like it was a surprise to hear it, but it was 
it was this the song that I had the lowest expectations for that really exceeded my expectations. Um, Brian, I'm going to assume you like Lake, Lakeside Park. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, I, I absolutely love it. I, I have always liked this song. I, I, I've never heard that perspective on the bass part, and I absolutely see what you're saying. On the original song, it's almost like a counter medley. It's, yeah, uh, melody. It, it's, it's not, not what you expect, right? Yeah, it's exactly. You, 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 you would almost want something simpler there. Um, but I, I agree. I've always really enjoyed the song. It's just, it seems so different from anything else that Rush has done, even um, since. I mean, it's sort of a nostalgic song that's not necessarily something that Neil doesn't really uh, dip into nostalgia too much, but this song is pure nostalgia. And um, I've always enjoyed that. That's that side of things. It's just a light, very sensitive melody, and I I've always loved this song. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think they they did. I was I was as surprised I think maybe as you were Jay to hear it. And uh, but you know it does make sense. It's as we're going back in time, it makes sense to have this song on there because you know you could. This song has appeared on live albums before, and um, yeah, it's just a it's just a a great a great rendition of a sort of underappreciated song. How about you, Dylan? Uh, like said park and Anthem. I, I don't gravitate towards those songs, uh, quite as much as somebody else might. Um, so when I got to this part of the set, like the encore, it, it, this, these two songs, I realized they're not for me. So I just enjoyed them for for what it for what they were. Um, they're not terrible, but I I just don't um, I don't connect with them. But what I did like was on the on the DVD when they uh, came out with matching like Pe- uh, Paisley Telecasters. Yeah, very yeah. cool, right? Like that that's was cool. It's now- so. It's goofy, but it's kind of awesome. Yeah, and those are two highly collectible guitars. Um, Dylan, you might be able to clear clear it up because uh, my bass geekery doesn't go quite this deep, but I think I always see that bass that he's playing, the Paisley bass, uh, as one of the first, that first style of precision bass um, with like the thinner headstock and the single pickup. But yeah. I believe there's something called a Telecaster bass, and that might actually be what that is. I think it's very similar to those like early 50s P basses. Do you have any idea? Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Either way, it's a cool change of pace for Getty, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. I, I like both the Telecaster guitars and the Telecaster basses. Uh-huh. Uh, I just think they look they look like an Old West kind of instrument. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's kind of weird to, for them to play it on Blakeside Park and Anthem if you kind of think of it that way. <laughs> what's weird about this? They're not Western-sounding songs. This encore featured four tracks, which is kind of different in modern Rush history, right? We usually get three if there's no medleys, and or, or something in some cases two, I think. But um, I, I, that leads me to say that what you're doing is really a we're very lucky to at least have had that slot that it took. We're they could have mm-hmm. so easily gone Lakeside Park for Caress of Steel, uh, Anthem for Fly yeah. By Night. Boom, working, uh, working man. I almost said working them angels. Working man from the original, from the debut album. Boom, let's get out of here, right? 
play Working Man, you get out, you go home. But I see a second song from the debut album as a total bonus that we're just lucky to have. And it made me realize how well I always kind of, I discount everything from that debut album. I listen to it once in a while. I enjoy it, but I don't consider it any, I don't consider any of that material to be grade a rush. If that makes sense, aside from working man. And, um, I kind of changed my mind with what you're doing. I thought this song works, man. This, this is a live, this is a song that was built for the live setting. Um, it, it makes you wish they played that song for years exactly, before, right? Yes. Because it's so heavy. It's so fun. I mean, I think it leads really well into Working Man. And yeah, I'm with you, man. What you're doing, it's always been, I, I kind of discount this, the first album too, but I do not, that song, that song is fantastic. As as much as I thought that Lakeside Park and Anthem, you know, I didn't, I didn't um, appreciate them what you're doing grew on me. Like when they played it live and how to see how much fun they were having on such an old song and just kind of like a pretty straight up song with a lot of actually complicated parts. Yep. Um, I, I enjoyed it. And like I said, it's, it's grown on me and I'm, I'm glad, you know, um, if they were going to play, like if you said, okay, they're going to play two songs from their debut album you'd guess, okay, well, Working Man. And then you think, well, maybe, you know, they talked about playing Fly By Night. Maybe they'll do Fly By Night slash In The Mood. But they didn't. <laughs> yeah, fly, somehow so Fly By Night is just the forgotten song that never got played. Yeah, I and I, I'm honestly so glad they didn't play In The Mood. That's just one of those songs that I kind of cringe every time I hear it. Oh, same, but I thought it, I thought for sure we would hear it, especially halfway through the mm. show when I realized what they were doing. I'm like, oh, we're going to hear In The yeah. Mood without a doubt because they got to <laughs> cover that album, right? And they yeah. always yeah. used to close yeah. within The Mood. But That's we were right. wrong, and I guess it's a good thing. Um, um, do you guys... Um, uh, you know how uh, Alex is always like going over to Getty in this song. Uh-huh. Do you guys have that same experience at your shows? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I remember watching yeah. Alex playing his solo. He would go way up the neck and then go past the frets, which he does on the DVD. Oh, yeah. But I I don't remember him ever doing that before. I remember thinking like is he running out of material but is, is he just sick of playing the old <laughs> same old stuff in his solo where he's just like i'm gonna make my own supposed to make some now. noise well yeah i don't know but it, it was awesome right it was and i always go ahead man uh i was gonna say whenever i watch the band live i'm always looking for those moments when when Alex is messing with Neil or trying to get Neil to laugh or talking to Neil, yeah. right? Because you, you expect Alex and Getty to have their moments where they're, you know, side by side or back to back or something like that. But it, but it, it always, I'm always looking for those moments where Alex is clearly trying to mess with Neil or trying to get him to laugh or something like that. And those, those are the, the moments I really enjoy. And there are a few on this a, one but... where Alex really gets Neil going. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got a funny story about um, when I saw him in Vancouver. Alex actually, he, is, he went over to Getty during um, What You're Doing, and he's, he's yelling something at Getty as Getty's singing. 
and then um, Getty takes a break in the in the verse in between lines, and then Alex is yelling, and you can hear him through the mic. He's yelling something, and then Getty finishes the next line, and then he plays, um, or like he stops playing and plays like that section where it's just vocals, mm-hmm. and he stops because, and he starts laughing because Alex actually succeeded and screwed him up. <laughs> <laughs> that's the greatest. That's awesome. you know, that that's the stuff we like. Like I'd rather them goof the song up, but get an opportunity to see them having fun on stage. You know. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the stage setup. Uh, I'll never ever forget because I went in blind, and I remember my buddy Chad next to me had seen the show in Boston a few days earlier. He knew what was going on, so he got to kind of watch my reaction. Uh, for example, seeing the Anarchist as number one. Uh, seeing another clockwork song after that and me being like what is going on and also the stage looks just like the last tour um when (laughs) when the crew member came out and pulled out one of the sections of getty's back line spun it around to the washing or the the dryer and then inserted it back i was like whoa that's pretty cool when i saw alex's crew member come out and uh and kind of like replace one of those big te- uh, TV circles with a Hughes and Kettner cabinet. I went, oh, I see what's going on here. I see where that second drum set is coming into play. I see what they're going to do. And to have it all end with just one of those amps each sideways on a couple of chairs with a microphone drooped over the side and very simple lighting fixtures the aesthetic was perfect it was perfectly executed on this tour i don't know if any other band has ever done anything like that um a lot of bands don't have opportunities to do things like that they're not together for 40 years um but i just uh i'm it's incredible how they continued to raise the bar through their whole career up until the end um I do want to say the the when they come out after intermission and they get those huge stacks of amplifiers and Alex has marshals yeah. that are like six wide and three high or whatever. I love that it's clearly a joke and a kind of they're kind of poking fun at like the the 80s rock star who had a wall of amplifiers. Like neither of them ever <laughs> right. had that many amps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is kind of a tongue in cheek sort of deal. It's 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 they have lots of little moments like that in the staging of this show. I mean, even if you look at the cover of R40 Live, you see that Getty's amp has a mic hung over it that's right yeah. in front of the cabinet. You know, it's just something you do in high school, right? When you got one amp and you're you want to be heard, you know, you drape the mic over the cabinet and yeah, what what a clever. It was yeah, it was just a delight from from song to song. You never knew what you were going to expect. You once you got the gist of the narrative there. You, you saw where things were heading, but you didn't know how far they'd take it, how they'd pull off the, the earliest of early days, what that would look like. That's what I was wondering. It's like, how are they going to do this? You know, how are they going to make the, the, the earliest days of Rush look? What's that going to look like? Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was surprises uh, every few songs. It was just really well done. You're up, Dylan. I just thought it was awesome. At the very end of Working Man, to have them play, you know, just 16 bars of Garden Road or whatever. Yeah, that was my next comment. It was just, 
it was yeah. phenomenal. It couldn't be more perfect the way the whole tour, the whole stage setup, and the just the show was was arranged. It couldn't be more perfect. I guess the only thing I was saying is I, I kind of wish they had a little, and maybe they did and I missed it, but I kind of wish they had a little shout out to John Rutsey. Maybe his picture or something like that. I, I don't know. but um, Yeah, that's an I, interesting I was point. They could have done maybe yeah. something. Now, my, my tiny, yeah. tiny little pet peeve at the end of the show in that Garden Road quote. Number one, I, I don't know Garden Road. I still don't. I've never heard it. The record, the original recording. I know a lot of you guys are into like those those vault tracks, but uh, or like look it up, man. Call them. <laughs> I know. Um, but because at, at the time we heard it, and I looked at Chad and went, "What the hell was that?" <laughs> He's like, "I don't know." <laughs> it kind of took the air out of the room for me because they had this huge rocking ending, and then stopped the song started playing garden road like a a healthy chunk of it then stopped again and i think more than half of the people there were like what what was that so i wish they had done it as a teaser i wish it had been a a tag at the end of working man they're in the same key so similar to cygnus Mm. so they'll be playing the last note of a song and, and playing it over and over and over this last note and just when you think they're gonna play the last note that ends the song they play that cygnus teaser and that's the end of the song. I wish Garden Road had been inserted into that last note of Working Man so that there was no gap between them. And it was just like yeah. second to last note of Working Man, that Garden Road section, and then the end of Garden Road was the end of the whole thing. That's how I wish it had gone down. But it's a very small thing to to criticize. Overall, yeah, I, I, highly enjoyed I wonder it. if people... I wonder if people who didn't know what that was, maybe like UJ or just people who were being dragged along by their friend to the show. <laughs> I wonder how that would have played for them. You know, they're like, well, that was short. You know, that right. song was very short. <laughs> yeah. Once I found out what it was, I was like, oh, that's, that's perfect. Right. You, we went backwards and now we're going all the way back to when there weren't even rush albums yet. Yep. Um, yeah, what a unique album and a great way to end the live album series, a great way to end, you know, their career. Um, and uh, I'm happy to have you two guys on the show and get a nice, healthy, chunky, long episode in here about a great album. Uh, for Brian, how you doing, man? Thank you so much for being on. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And also, Dylan, how you doing? That's my new thing. I'm starting saying how you doing to everybody who's on the show. Uh, um, but I appreciate so, have I appreciate having you guys both on. Is there uh, a way uh, somewhere you want to send people? Your, maybe a Twitter account or a website. Take that as a no. Go ahead, Dylan. <laughs> Dylan, what's your Twitter, man? Uh, uh, you, you see me on Twitter quite a bit. I talk to you on uh, from uh, at Dylan B underscore twenty seven. There we go. Uh, Brian, do you have something similar? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's Mechberg, M-E-C-H-B-E-R-G. Perfect. Uh, thank you guys again. This has been a, a great episode, and I think people will enjoy this one. Uh, thank you all for being here again, and, and if you've stuck around this long, I highly appreciate it. 
Um, this is the end of the live album series, and as we've said, this will be the end of weekly Rushcast episodes, but that is not a bad thing, because we're going to start having, uh, we're going to have episodes when we have enough material to fill episodes, so right off the bat here, that'll be pretty quick, I think we'll be back in, in two weeks probably. Uh, but they're going to be more user-based in a sense, meaning you guys on my mailing list are going to be contributing to what we're talking about. So uh, that means more listeners on the air, uh, several listeners on the air talking about several different topics per episode. So it's going to be, you guys are going to be helping me plan each episode is what's essentially going to happen. It's a bigger opportunity for you to be on Rushcast as well. Um, I think it's going to be a better experience overall uh the the quantity will decrease but the quality i think will double so i'm i'm really excited for that so please send me an email to be on the mailing list so that i can reach out to you when i need certain things for certain topics on our episodes uh guys we'll be back really soon and uh, i hope to see you here when we're back thanks guys (laughs) 